come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Passage goes on because he's addressing this to believers in Corinth, working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation." If you belong to my generation, to our generation, you will remember the ultra-famous uh, Upper Clydeside uh, activist, unionist, Jimmy Reed. Uh, in his own day, he may have been the most famous Scotsman in the world. Uh, he began life as a communist. This is a biographical, not a political statement. He began life as a communist. He then went into the Labour Party, and I think he ended up in the SNP. And uh, he was the, probably the most uh, sought-after person in the country by the media for comment on all kinds of things. In, I think, 1972, he became the rector of the University of Glasgow. His rectorial address made such an impression, it was reprinted in the New York Times. And the New York Times said, this may be the most significant address given in the English language since Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. And if you're an American, there is no greater address than Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. The theme was alienation, and Jimmy Reed began with these words, alienation is the precise and correctly applied word for describing the major social problem in Britain today. I suspect the Apostle Paul would have agreed. But the Apostle Paul's analysis was much deeper than Jimmy Reed's. And the Apostle Paul's response to that analysis in the gospel of Jesus Christ brought much more hope than the conclusion did to Jimmy Reed's famous speech, which was a hope that things would get better. And it's because the Apostle Paul understands that alienation 
is a, a way of describing our basic situation as human beings, that he understands the marvel of the gospel because at the heart of Paul's gospel is this notion that God in Jesus Christ provides us with reconciliation. We were thinking the last time we looked at these verses about the way in which he expounds that because God has reconciled the world to Himself in Jesus Christ. It isn't, incidentally, that God does not count our sins, although Paul uses these words. He makes very clear God does count our sins, but the gospel is this, the good news is this, that He does not count our sins against us because He has counted them against Jesus Christ. And when we respond to this message, the apostle says, so now in the light of God laying aside His enmity and placing it on Jesus Christ, I appeal to you in His name to be reconciled to God. And in those words, he makes clear that there are two dimensions to this reconciliation. There is the reconciliation that God has accomplished for us, and there is the reconciliation, the restoration, the transformation that God accomplishes in us. Because of the reconciliation God has accomplished in Christ, the Apostle Paul himself has experienced reconciliation with God. And we saw last time the word that Paul uses for reconcile, reconciliation, has at its basic root the idea of a change taking place. And indeed, he uses an intensive form of the word to express the idea not just of a change taking place, but of an exchange taking place. And this is precisely what he says in these great words in verse 21. An exchange took place for us on the cross. God made Christ to be our sin. And in Jesus Christ, God makes us, when we trust in Him, to become His righteousness. Christ, who is altogether righteous, takes my sin I who am sinful are given in exchange through faith the righteousness of God, an irreversible righteousness, because it's Christ's righteousness, a righteousness that can never be added to, so that as we sometimes say, the newest Christian in the room this morning is as righteous in the sight of God as the oldest and most mature Christian. And the oldest and most advanced Christian can never be more righteous in the sight of God than the newest Christian, because both are righteous not with their own righteousness, but before God with the righteousness, the self-same righteousness that Jesus Christ has exchanged for our sinfulness. 
But when Paul says, God has done this in Christ, he also says, so I appeal to you to receive the reconciliation. And what he's after here is, is this, that just as there is an exchange made on our behalf in Christ, there is also an exchange made within us by Christ. And this is one of those interesting passages in Paul where uh, the logic of what he says is, is almost the reverse of the way in which he comes to it. In the earlier verses that we read from verse 9 on to verse 17, he, he is talking about the, the implications and the application of reconciliation. And then at the end, he says, now, here is the foundation of that. And having considered the foundation of that, this great work of reconciliation in Jesus Christ, I want us to look, as it were, backwards to what that did to the Apostle Paul, the exchange that took place in his life because of the exchange that took place on the cross. Because the exchange that took place on the cross is ours only. We have received the exchange only when there is an exchange actually takes place in our lives. And it has three dimensions. First of all, as he tells us in verse 9 and following, there is an exchange of our old view of Christ for a new view of Christ. Uh, there used to be a textbook that was used by first-year psychology students all over the world, uh, written by two psychologists who rejoiced in the names of Kretsch and Crutchfield. And uh, I remember uh, reading this as a teenager and turning over the page of this marvelous American-smelling, large textbook on psychology, and the heading on one of the pages was the aha experience. And you didn't need to be a student to understand what the aha experience uh, is. You, you've all had it when you, you say, aha, now I see it. Archimedes in his bath discovering the, was it the principle of flotation or displacement? I guess it was displacement. And he, he famously leaps out of his bath in the scuddy and runs down the street shouting, Eureka, Eureka, I've found it, because he'd had an aha experience. And from that point of view, the, the psychology of becoming a Christian, what happens in our mind when we become Christians is that we have a spiritual aha moment. We, we saw things one way, but now we, we see them an entirely different way. We were, we were puzzling, perhaps, about the gospel, puzzling about Jesus, but now we see Jesus in a different light. And Paul underlines this, doesn't he, when he says, uh, from now on, he says, here is the truth of our, our lives. We, he says, we make it, verse 9, our aim 
to please Him. And we do so, as he later explains in verse 16, because although we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard Him thus no longer. According to the flesh is a kind of almost technical expression for having a this-worldly view of things, having a purely horizontal view of things. Kind of thing Paul speaks about in Ephesians 2 when he, he says, by nature we are, we, are, uh, we are being swept along by the course of this world. And uh, you, you can see it in the papers every day, can't you? In the media every day. People getting on the bandwagon of the latest thing, the latest perspective on things. We are awash with it today. And yet, curiously, we don't see it. Uh, it's always been an amazing thing to me that characteristically, most people who regard themselves as nonconformists are actually very conforming. And uh, Paul says he, he was a Jew, of course. He, he had a, a this-worldly horizontal view of the Lord Jesus. And we do by nature. How many times have you, have you spoken to people? It may be less so today, but for, for all my lifetime, it would be true. People would say to you, well, I don't believe all this stuff about Jesus being God. I don't believe all this stuff about the Bible being the inspired Word of God, but I, I think Jesus was a really good man. And if you say to them, could you tell me five things Jesus said or did, they'd be lost because they're simply following the drift. They've never read the Gospels. They don't know anything about Jesus. And so, their whole view of Jesus is molded by the, the womb in which they've been reared. Even while they think they have transcended all that, their minds are molded by this worldly perspectives. And the Apostle Paul in his Jewish world was exactly the same, but now no longer. We once regarded Him from a, a this-worldly point of view, but we don't look at Him that way any longer. And He says a very interesting thing, doesn't He? He says, one of the reasons for this is because I came to realize that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Actually, what he says there in verse 10, I think might be better translated, we must all be made manifest before the judgment seat of Christ. It's, a, it's, it's passive. It's not I'm going to appear, although that's true. It's I'm going to be made manifest. That must have dawned on him, don't you think, on the Damascus Road? Uh, whatever was going on in his heart, he must have realized at that point, I have been entirely wrong about this man. He is the Lord of glory. I've been persecuting him. I've been seeking to destroy the Son of God. And when, when that moment comes, you, you see, he realized he had, he had spent these months at least judging Jesus. And now it dawned on him that actually Jesus was judging him. 
And Paul, Paul, you see, sees Jesus now in a different light. He is the one before he, whom he's, he's going to appear, and everything about him will be, will be made manifest. Now, the interesting thing is this, that, uh, that for Paul, that was not a scary thought. Remember how he says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, I think it's verse 10, isn't it? That he's, he is going to the judgment seat of Christ, and what he anticipates receiving there is the crowning of his righteousness. The crowning of his righteousness. He, uh, he is anticipating that day with expectation and anticipation. And how can he possibly do that? Well, I've often wondered uh, how much his companion Luke talked to him about the gospel he was writing. Because of this marvelous parable that Jesus tells in, in Luke 19 about the, the man who goes away and he, he gives his servants a pretty substantial amounts of money, ten minas, and then he returns and he asks them what they've done with it. And uh, here is one who, is, uh, who, is, who has doubled the investment. There's a man who says, I knew you were a hard man, so I didn't do anything with it. And the master says, you might at least have put it in the bank and got me some interest. But you remember how the judgment goes for these servants who have loved their master and trusted him? Oh, so, so you made five more. I'm going to put you in charge of five cities. Now, you can see the connection, can't you? The connection's in the number five. But there's no connection in looking after this substantial amount of money and being made a f- mayor of five cities. I mean, imagine it, that you imagine that you serve the Lord Jesus Christ in all your weakness, and as you approach the judgment seat, you, you think, I've done so little. And he says, well, here's five things that you did faithfully for me with the gifts that I gave to you. And, and you, at the moment, you can take your choice. David Robertson's not here yet. You can take your choice. Do you want Glasgow, Edinburgh, Dundee, Perth, and Aberdeen? Do you want to be mayor of those cities in, in the new order? If that, if that happened, you would say, Lord, what did I ever do to deserve this? And he will say, this is the last time I'm going to say this to you. Don't you realize that everything you get from me, including my judgment on your life, is full of grace? And you see, that explains why for Paul, the knowledge that people will appear before the judgment seat of Christ and His people will receive the crowning of their righteousness transforms His view of the Lord Jesus altogether. I actually believe there are many Christians who think that Jesus is gracious to you as long as you live, but they fear the judgment seat of Christ like they fear nothing else because somehow or another they think he'll forget to be gracious then. So, you see, this is, a, this is a totally new view of the Lord Jesus Christ, and this is why he says these great words in verse 14, 
that the result of this is that we are constrained, we are, we are driven on, we are, we are held in, our lives are dominated by the love of Christ. Well, how do we know that love? Well, He gives the answer He gives everywhere because we understand what He did for us on the cross. You see, the sheer power of His logic is this. If He has borne my sin on the cross as an expression of the passion of His love for me, do you think it's likely that He will turn away from that on the day of judgment? And he's given a wholly different view of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is love so amazing, so divine, that at least as Isaac Watts originally wrote it, it demands my soul. And some of our modern versions say, uh, filter that down. It will have my soul. That's not what Watts wrote, and it's not what he meant. Because love does demand. Love demands all of you. Real love demands you all, body and soul. And the love of God demands you all in Jesus Christ because the love of God wants you for Christ Himself. This must have been an amazing… Paul, Paul frequently talks about this. You know, if you, if you meet some of those old Normandy veterans… I don't know that there are many of them left now. I've been amazed the number of them who have said to me, I still cannot understand why I am still alive. And they died. And you see, Paul was very conscious of that to the end of his life. I cannot, I cannot understand why you love me. And the divine answer to that was, look, I've proved my love, and the reason I love you is because I love you. So, there is this tremendous exchange in Paul's life and in those who become believers of this old view of Christ for a new view of Christ. But then there's a second element in it as well, isn't there? Not only an old view of Christ changed for a new view of Christ, but in an amazing way, the old view of others is exchanged for a new view of them. Remember what he said, we used to, we looked, used to judge Jesus according to this worldly standards. But that full sentence is that we no longer view others according to the flesh, even though that was once true of Christ, and we no longer view Him according to the flesh, it's, it's also true of others, and, and we do, don't we? Uh, we judge according to the outer man. We judge according to worldly standards. But now you see, Paul sees people in a, in a completely different frame of reference. He sees something behind them, and what he sees behind them is, of course, the judgment seat of Christ. The judgment seat of Christ, which he thought would destroy him, but now because he understands Christ has borne his sin, will be the crowning of his justification. 
but he knows that's not true of those who do not belong to Jesus Christ. It's, it is constantly an amazing thing to Christians, isn't it? That people who hate God, who do not want His presence in their lives, who, if they describe heaven, will describe a heaven in which God is not present, have this amazing idea that of their own free will, somehow or another when they die, all that will change that they will love God, that they will love heaven, that they will love Jesus, that they'll love the angels, that they'll love purity, that they'll love singing hymns, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Interesting, isn't it, how, uh, how poorly people think about themselves. But you see, Paul thinks about other people now clearly because of the way he's thinking about Jesus Christ, and he sees their background differently. And so, whenever he preaches, he always has this in view. So, there used to be a theory that when Paul went to Corinth, as he says to the Corinthians in, in weakness and fear and much trembling, it was because he had come, fr come from Athens and he'd bombed out there in his preaching. He tried to be philosophical and apologetic instead of preaching the gospel. That's what he should have done. But that's nonsense. You, should remember, you remember how that sermon was brought to a close by scoffing and mocking it was when Paul said to these proud, arrogant Athenians, the day is coming when God is going to judge the world by the man He has appointed, Jesus Christ. Uh, that's a sobering, sobering message. And it's especially sobering when you think that Paul says, on that day we will all be manifested. As I say, it's not just appear, you see. There are people who think that they can appear before the judgment seat of God, and they'll, they'll still want to argue with Him. That's not what Paul is saying. He's saying, on that day you will be manifested, and that's what will close your mouth. Perhaps for the first time in your life you will stop arguing. And, you know, I, I served in a church where there were, there were many ministers, and there was, there was a vacancy for another minister, and the, the committee who were looking for the other minister got very interested in a, a man who was a minister in another church. And then one day, the chairman of the search committee, who was a very uh, able lawyer, came to me. He said, I've got a problem. I said, I said, well, what is it? He said, it's with this man that we're interested in. I said, what's the problem? Well, he was a lawyer. He said, I, I downloaded his entire Twitter account. I've looked through 3,000 of his tweets, just 3,000 of them. And what I've seen is a pattern that is disturbing. What are we going to do? Do you know what I said to him? I said, mentioned his name, I said, you know, there are probably only two people in the world who know this about this man. You're one of them, and now I'm the other. He probably doesn't know it. He probably doesn't realize that he has, he has as it were, given himself away, not only in his self-obsessions, but in 
the things that he actually obsesses about because they rise in the graph to the surface in what he says. And when he told me, if this is, if this is true of your Twitter account, how much more is it true of the one who sees everything that's in your heart, who, who understands your motives and your actions and your, your, your ambitions, what occupies your mind. It is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. If you should mark my iniquities, says the psalmist in Psalm 130. You imagine it on the screen, you know, that would be, that'd be a pretty neat a thing, wouldn't it? If you know, as we came into the church, as we were as we were singing, there was a camera that, like, focused on all of us and exposed the real truth about us. You know, we we wouldn't be back for the evening service, I don't think. But if we're believers, we're clothed in Christ's righteousness, and that's a gift of God. But if we're not in Jesus Christ, then you see, all we've got is ourselves manifested before the judgment seat of God. It's very interesting the way Paul deals with this because um, some of you will remember from, from reading somewhere or another that Aristotle said really, really powerful communication always has three elements, logos, pathos, ethos. Logos is the, the power of the truth. Pathos is the emotion that goes along with that truth, that's consistent with that truth. And ethos is the life of integrity that matches the truth that's spoken and the manner in which it's spoken. And Paul is all of these here. He has powerful logic. Uh, he has also, he's also got this profound pathos, pathos of, I appeal to you. Because these things are true, I appeal to you from my heart. Be reconciled to God. But he, he's also got the, the ethos, which is, um, you know, you listen to people and you realize that there is a there's a gap between the words they say and, and the people they are. And you, you often hear that. You can often see through what people are saying, can't you? Even just ordinary conversation, you see through them. And in, in, in philosophers and, and false apostles about whom Paul speaks, exactly the same thing. No integrity between the message that was being preached and the and the person who was preaching it, but it's here in Paul, isn't it? Uh, he says, uh, he says, if we are, if we are beside ourselves, if uh, verse thirteen, if we are beside ourselves, if we are out of our mind, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. What does he mean? Well, he, he's talking about what people were saying about him. The false, the so-called super apostles in Corinth, they were saying this kind of thing about him, demeaning him. Paul, he's, he's off his rocker. 
This is what, remember how, how Paul was specifically addressed in Acts, as Acts 26. Paul, you are beside yourself. You're out of your mind. And you see what he says here? He says, whether we're in our right minds, he says, it is for you the truth of the gospel. If we seem to be out of our minds, it's because the love of God and Jesus Christ constrains us. Um, let me commend to you this book by a man I met decades ago by the name of Don Cormack. It's the story of amazing story of the Christian church uh, in the days of the Khmer Rouge story of the church in Cambodia. And he tells this amazing story in the book of one of those camps on the, the northwest, I think, of Cambodia, uh, where a man who wasn't a Christian was brought uh, uh, in order, I think, to serve as a guard. And there was a, there was a, a, a little slightly deformed man uh, in that camp who, who went about in the camp uh, uh, shouting and, and saying strange things in languages people didn't understand, waving his arms around, uh, and, and people described him as, as essentially the idiot. Um, but he'd actually been a university professor, and he was a Christian believer. And the words he was shouting were prayers to God to have mercy on the people in the camp. And inside his little pillow, he kept a copy of the Bible. And this man and others were brought to faith through this man who was prepared for Jesus' sake, although he was in his right mind, for the sake of God, to be thought of as the fool. They, they gave him the job of gathering up the excrement in the camp. They thought so poorly of him, and yet he was an ambassador for Jesus Christ. So, not only does Paul speak about an old view of Christ being replaced by a new view and an old view of others being replaced by a new view, but there's also the big issue of the day. What is the big issue of today? If you ask people, what is it? It's our identity. Who are we? Who am I? And so Paul says here in Christ, there is an exchange of the old view of ourselves for an entirely new view. And he puts it like this in verse uh, uh, 17, isn't it? He, he says, if, any, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. It's actually difficult to translate what Paul says, but I think actually what he says is this. Not if any individual is in Christ, he or she is a new creature, as you would find in the older versions. Nor even if any individual is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. Those things are true, but I don't think they're what Paul is saying. What Paul literally says is, if any in Christ, new creation. If any, in Christ, wow, it's a new creation. Remember the hymn, Loved with Everlasting Love, that speaks about 
a Christian seeing something living in every hue that Christless eyes have never seen. It's true, isn't it? Because you see, what happens to you when you become a believer is that you're, you're brought out of the old humanity in which you've lived your life into a new humanity, out of a, an old age that's been dominated by the world, the flesh, and the devil, into a new age that's been brought in by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And everything changes, absolutely everything changes for you and you discover that you're now living in the old creation, still living in the old creation, but you're living in it as somebody who belongs to a new order of reality altogether. And if you're a Christian, you see that. If you're not a Christian, here's the problem, you don't see that. You, you don't see that. You can't see that. But you see, this is the glorious truth of the gospel, that there is this marvelous exchange. Some of us here come from other countries, and some of us have lived in other countries. And you, you know, people will say to you, we used to live in the United States for many years. People were often saying to us, we spoke the same language, more or less. They would say, well, what's the difference between living in the United States and living in the United Kingdom? My stock answer, absolutely everything. Absolutely everything is just a little bit different. And if you've come from somewhere else to the United Kingdom, uh, you find exactly the same thing is true. And you live as a citizen of one world working it out in another world, and one of the things you discover is how many times you've got to explain to people why it is that you think the way you think, and even if you use the same language, they don't quite hear it. But it's like a great parable of the difference between being outside of Christ and inside of Christ so that when you are in Christ and part of this new uh, creation, the old creation and those who belong to it are, are puzzled by you. They, they, they cannot understand why you think the way you do. In God's grace, they may be intrigued by what they see and drawn in by what they see, and their eye is opened by the Spirit to share what you have discovered in Christ. Uh, we used to live in Columbia in South Carolina, and uh, those of you who have seen Gone with the Wind, which I haven't, and no, I don't want your DVD, um, <laughs> you, know, you know there is, there is something very striking about the southern accent. And when we lived there, I used to love being in, in these tall buildings and uh, going up or down on the elevator and engaging in conversation with people. And Usually it was, they would be emboldened as you were about to leave to say, and where do you come from? And I loved turning around as the doors were closing and saying with as big a smile as I could muster, oh, I come from Columbia, South Carolina. And to see the doors closing on <laughs> these, how can that be? And you see, that's really how we are in this world. 
We're not of it, although we're in it. We belong to a… we have a new citizenship. We've exchanged the old citizenship for the new citizenship. We have a new Lord that we seek to please. We no longer live for ourselves, says Paul, but for Him who loved us and gave Himself for us. And so, the evidence that uh, the great exchange has been made for me and I have responded to it is that God works these great exchanges in us and transforms us to serve Him for His glory so that both our words and our lives say to people, oh, don't you see what it means to be reconciled to God? Will you not be reconciled to God? You not lay down your arms, all your opposition, and come and trust in Him and enter the new world and discover as we have discovered something lives in every hue that Christless eyes have never seen. And the reason you've never seen it is because your eyes are Christless. But when they're open to see Christ, to trust Him for what He's done, then everything will become new. What a great and glorious gospel this is. Who would, who would be without it? Don't be without it. Don't be without this great Savior. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for the goodness and grace of our Lord Jesus and for the marvel of His sacrifice on our behalf. And thank You for uh, the examples that others have set before us of even being willing to be thought beside themselves, out of their minds, strange, alien, for the sake of the gospel. We pray, our Father, that the knowledge that the Lord Jesus loves us will be all the courage we need to live for Him and speak for Him in this world. And we pray this in His name. Amen.